should wait to come out, that you should uh, try to gain rank or status before you do that. That's a bunch of bull It's a new day in the music industry, and I can reach my fans. We're getting there. I've caused harm to the political agenda, and which I'm actually happy for. I would say probably the best message to them is that they're on the wrong side of history. Whether you're lesbian, gay, bi, transgender, or whatever, love is love. Shout it out to the world. The Michelle Miao Show. Your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. And now here's your host, Michelle Miao. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Happy Tuesday. And I can officially say that it is the ultimate Taco Tuesday because the Golden State Warriors won. And so Taco Bell is giving away a Doritos, uh, I don't know, taco thing. Anyway, besides it being the ultimate Taco Tuesday, it's also the best Tuesday because John Zipper of Commonwealth Club is here with us. John, thanks for being with us. Glad to be here. Thanks. You did not bring me a taco from Taco Bell. I did not know about this. Mystery Doritos <laughs> taco or whatever you're talking about. <laughs> Mystery Doritos taco. You know, they do all kinds of things. I'm, I'm surprised. Well, actually, I think there is some fast food joint out there that does Cheetos crusted something. Maybe that's in honor of uh, the president. <laughs> <laughs> really bad for you, unhealthy and orange. Um, thanks so much for joining us here on the Michelle Miao Show, your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. As we are recording this show, many of you are tuning in to the reality show that the president has created for himself, and that is the <laughs> Sessions testimony and looking into uh, Russiagate and, and uh, a whole lot of other, other things it feels or sounds like. Um, we're able to record some of it, and so John and I will talk about Sessions later on in the show. The first half of the show will focus on LGBTQ activism and, and how our activism affects the movement, and I should say the resistance movement. We'll also touch on how San Francisco uh, recognized the one-year anniversary of Pulse. So let's get today's program started. Today's show is brought to you by Pacific Fertility Center. When life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. Our guest today is a sister, one of the uh, most highly recognized sisters that there are out there, I should say. Um, they're the baddest, awesome, greatest, most lovable sisters. And yes, you guessed it, that would be the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. Michelle, it's a pleasure. And John, hello to you too, and everyone listening today. Uh, wow. <laughs> it's one of those days. I'm all flustered. It's hot here. It's hot in San Francisco. Anyway, uh, Mary, I was just talking about the fact that, you know, San Francisco and the rest of the, the world really recognized the one-year anniversary of Pulse. Let's start with that. Let's have a conversation. Uh, in San Francisco, we did a little memorial at uh, the corner of 18th and, and uh, Castro, I believe, in San Francisco, and you're one of the organizers of, of that, right? Yes, it was a privilege. We called people back to the spot where a year ago the community had a spontaneous vigil uh, and brought it full circle. Now, you know, it's it's been a year, and I'm, I'm going to say this. I mean, a year ago, I, 
I still remember my exact feelings and uh, and woke up to heartburn and and, and checked Facebook just because I couldn't sleep. And then when I checked Facebook, it was it was like a, a nightmare. It was it was it was, it was horror. And a year later, I still had that same anxiety and this fear of waking up to June 12th. It's still very, very raw, very fresh, very hard for us to talk about the most deadly attack on the LGBTQ community here in America. Uh, what were some of the feelings or, or sentiments from those who came out to support the vigil? You know, many were very much the same. It was a raw moment for people. They wanted to come together to have a place to remember uh, to grieve openly. But I'd say there was also a real shift, uh, Michelle. Last year was a moment of shock and of real rage at this violence that had been committed against the community that was so discordant with what we were feeling that month. Uh, the, the Supreme Court ruling on uh, equal marriage had just come down. The Obama administration had yet again proclaimed Pride Month. The Justice Department was coming out to support trans youth in schools. So there was this added sort of violence that it was coming out of the blue. This year, a year later, after the national elections, after trans bathroom bills were put up in 11 legislatures, uh, Texas is even being recalled into special session to discriminate against people, there was a very different feeling. Uh, and what I would describe it as was, a feeling of resurgence and resistance, that we were together not just to grieve the people that we lost, but also to fight back and to organize. And indeed, one of the things that I was really touched by was the memorial in San Francisco was one of over 90 that were called across the country uh, by a grassroots organization called Order the, Honor Them with Action that sprang up in preparation for this. And a big focus of the night was people making pledges to take direct action and come together to work to protect not just LGBTQI rights, but all human and civil rights in the country. So that was a very different and marked uh, dimension to last night's celebration. That sounds like a really powerful thing to do. What were some of the types of pledges people were making? I mean, did they, did they share their pledges publicly? I mean... Yeah, they did, John. Thanks for asking. One of the things we did as organizers is we just wanted to open a container, and we trusted the community to fill it, and that's what happened. So Reverend Megan Rohr of the Evangelical Lutheran Church, she's the first ordained trans pastor and I, and Joni Juster, who's one of the organizers of a grassroots network here called um, Day of Decision. It was kind of put together when all the marriage equality and Prop 8 stuff was happening. We laid a framework, and then what we did is we had kind of an open mic, and so for the reading of the names of the 49 victims at Pulse, we passed the microphone and the names around. And, um, you know, I'm getting emotional now, but uh, one of the most beautiful things was just the diversity of voices came out, but they came out with passion and energy. And then we weren't just remembering those folks last night. We also remembered the 12 trans folks that we know by name who have been murdered since the start of 2017. And we remembered uh, the 36 victims of the ghost ship fire here in December in San Francisco, which was another blow to the community. And then we also remembered the 431 people since the start of the year that have been killed by police violence in this country. And then we opened the space and people brought out other 
people that they remembered and that they had lost to violence. So what we talked about was that we were really gathering this cloud of witnesses back into the body and that we were asking them to give us courage and strength so that we could respond to this hate with a powerful love and show faces of hope and not faces of despair. And for me, I'll be honest, coming full circle this year after, one of the things that was so powerful is since the election, I don't know if you're feeling it, but so many people in the community are just so reactive. You, you just can't keep up with the tweets or the insanity of Paul Ryan or Jeff Sessions, who's going on right now lying to Congress yet again. There's this sense that we're just rushing to um, stop the assaults, and so we're not in control of our own destiny. And one of the powerful things of going back to that corner last night for the more than 200 people that were there was to remember that there is a different spiral time. There is a different and deeper cycle of healing and resilience and resurrection and resistance that our community knows. And so part of the pledge last night was just committing to take a deep breath and not always be dominated by Donald Trump, but to set our own agenda and to set our own connections. And then, you know, people who came to the microphone, there was this beautiful 19-year-old person who came and talked about growing up in the Central Valley, being oppressed by her Southern Baptist Church and by her own parents. And Pulse gave her the courage to move to San Francisco. And then that person introduced her new partner, and she spoke about coming to the city we had a young woman who came from Houston, Texas, who, when Pulse happened, was all alone. And the pain she felt in that moment pushed her to risk everything to come to the city. And there was a beautiful uh, asexual person who came up and identified and said that even in San Francisco, sometimes it's a challenge to be recognized. But that person came to the microphone last night to create space. And so a lot of the pledges were very personal. They were posted on little post-its, so if you're in the Castro this week, you can go on 18th and you can see them. But one person talked about being a volunteer with Big Brothers and Big Sisters and getting a queer uh, Big Brother or Little Brother who had been waiting for three years for someone to reach in and support that person. Another person talked about volunteering with the AIDS Foundation in San Francisco and Meals on Wheels. A couple people a pledge that they would just be fiercely and powerfully themselves, no matter what the context and where they were. And a lot of people just turned to the people next to them and pledged, I'm going to put my phone down, and I'm not going to rush past you, and I'm going to hug you and say hello and connect to you and give space for us to have a conversation. For me, that, that was the most powerful thing in this city, that queer people of every stripe were giving each other space to listen to one another and to reach across their diversity. Mary, that is so beautiful. And thank you so much for being, you know, one of the organizers and putting this together. And I know that Orlando is going to be in our hearts forever, uh, just as some of the historical tragedies have impacted and affected us here in, in America. Uh, I want to talk about, you know, just the growing concern of, of safety for LGBTQ people, especially after this president has taken office. And although it is incredibly powerful to kind of, you know, put Donald Trump in the back of our minds, I can't help but think about the fact that since he has become president, uh, there have been more reports of violence impacting the LGBTQ community 
And, 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 and that comes, you know, after we had just suffered one of the greatest tragedies uh, in America or mass shootings that impacted the LGBTQ community. I mean, what are your thoughts about being able to do more for our community, especially, you know, living or, or coming from a city like San Francisco that has uh, we've gentrified a lot of the neighborhoods that LGBTQ people live in. A lot of LGBTQ people are displaced. I mean, lots of uh, bars, nightclubs, uh, safe places that we once socialized in are somewhat dwindling and, and we're kind of doing this reshuffling of socializing. And that was like a long way of asking you this question about safety and gathering, but I'd love to hear your thoughts. Well, thanks, Michelle. And first, that's a very real observation. I don't know if you saw Gaystar News this morning, but there was just a study published showing there had been more acts of violence against LGBTQI-identified people in 2016 than any year since records have been kept going back to the early 1980s. So this is not just a phantasm. This is a real experience that we're all having. But I think your question, it pushes two very important pieces of this. The first is real acts of violence. We have a federal government in many places, state and city governments, that actively oppose our very existence. I mean, Laverne Cox said it brilliantly that it's not about bathrooms. It's about the right of trans people to inhabit public space. So right there, that is a real issue. The other issue of safety is the one you're bringing up, which is dislocation. And that's this incredible economic crunch that's pushing vulnerable queer people off to the margins, that's causing the kind of sub-rate housing that triggered the fire that killed all those folks at the ghost ship, that creates so many homeless queer youth on the streets every evening, and that puts us in jeopardy even with our own families. So many young people are expelled uh, because of who they are. So these are two connected but distinct issues that I think we have to face. And, you know, from what I saw last night, I think there are three very important strategies. The first is to be honest and to begin to speak with an authentic voice for yourself, to discover who you are in your gender, in your orientation, in your personhood, and then to begin to risk finding allies that will support you and sustain you and encourage you. That's a very personal work, but it begins with kind of putting yourself out there the other is that we have to organize. One of the most powerful things that happened last night is many people at the vigil said that they would register themselves to vote and that they would show up at the next election. And as rigged and as ridiculous as the system is in America, if you don't vote, you're ceding power. So there was a powerful kind of affirmation of that strategy. And I think third is to put pressure on queer organizations and local political organizations to fight uh, to push back against this dislocation. Uh, there were several young people at the memorial last night who said the biggest risk they face is in finding safe housing. And Jess Sheehy, who's the supervisor for District 8, which is where the Castro is, he spoke at the memorial last night, not so much as a politician, but as someone who's lived in the city a long time and been an activist, and he just challenged everyone there to make homelessness a priority in their own lives and talked about how less than 7% of the city's budget is given to homeless needs. 7% 
in a city as wealthy as San Francisco where 30,000 people sleep rough every night. And he talked about pushing at the city council for more shelters and shelters targeted for youth and LGBTQ people. But Jeff Sheehy can't do that without our support. Uh, so I think those three things, being honest and articulating an authentic voice, finding the allies to support you in that journey, registering and showing up as part of the political process, and then networking and putting pressure on people to really put our issues first. Those are the strategies, I think, that work. Mary, thank you so much for that. That that was great. That was beautiful. I'm going to take a quick break, but when we come back, we'll continue our conversation. And I think John and I want to kind of dive into just, uh, you know, the LGBTQ fight and how it applies to the big resistance movement that's happening right now. So don't go away. We'll be right back. Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? (laughs) Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. When asked, 90% of seniors say they want to remain in their own homes as they age. Hello, I'm Charles Symes, owner of Allegra Home Care. Our caregivers have been serving seniors and the aging community for over 20 years. Allegra Home Care is the only Bay Area home care agency that is LGTB certified. Helping LGTB seniors stay at home is our passion. Please visit us at www.alegrecare.com. Allegra Home Care serving your community. This is a true story about two best friends who fell in love and moved across the country to the city by the bay. After many years of dating, Jen and Jacqueline are now planning their dream wedding. It's a big moment in everyone's life when you say I do, especially when you can make choices for your authentic life and your loved ones too. Congratulations, Jen and Jacqueline. Live Your Authentic Life, a special message brought to you by Weatherford BMW. Many nonprofits rely on events to raise money, create space for community gathering, and offer opportunities to network. But how many hours in a day do community leaders have when they're busy changing the world? Imagine your next event, gala, festival, or celebration professionally executed with creative ideas and ideals to match your community service. IDK is the community's trusted event production company. Visit idkevents.com for all your event production needs. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Welcome back. Thank you so much for joining me here on this Tuesday. I'm Michelle Miel, your host. John Zipper of Commonwealth Club is here with us. And on the phone as our guest is Sister Mary Peters. Uh, Sister Mary is, t- is talking to us about just um, a visual that we did here in San Francisco, uh, recognizing and honoring the Pulse nightclub victims uh, in the, in, and what happened and how it impacted the LGBTQ community a year ago. We're going to transition our conversation now to LGBTQ activism, how we are fighting back, how we're resisting, how we're contributing to the resistance movement. 
And so, sister, I thought you would be a, a perfect person to talk about this this topic in terms of how are we doing? We just had a national equality march that happened in D.C. It looked like a few cities had participated and some could not. I'd love to hear your thoughts in terms of, uh, you know, kind of what we've been doing uh, in looking back from the very beginning and the women's march and how big of a turnout that is. It just it looks like people are still active and doing a whole lot of protesting and marching. Well, I think you're right, Michelle, and all things considered, I'd say we're doing pretty darn good. So um, first, pat on the back to LGBTQI people who could just be exhausted and be taking a seltzer and laying down. So not a bad start. Um, I think in San Francisco, one of the things that I've noticed, though, is we have some work to do within our own community. Uh, As you said, the Women's March in San Francisco turned out over 150,000 people. Well, we couldn't organize a march for the National Day of Equality, Unity, and Pride, uh, we got tongue-tied here. And some of that was just issues with permits, and a lot of other people had picked the spaces during a busy week. But I think one of the things that we're learning is that, uh, you know, the right wing, they have been playing a long game, and they have been organizing since Barry Goldwater in the early 1960s, building think tanks, building foundations, building corporate centers of power, getting legislatures on side, writing laws, working hard and united. And they've been very effective. Part of that is because, in my personal opinion, they lack a lot of integrity. And so it's raw power, and they're willing to push aside every rule to get what they want. And I would never say we should do that. But I think on our side, our community tends to be kind of fractious, and gets distracted very easily. So we might rally every four years for a presidential election, but then we kind of forget about local politics and the work of getting the streets fixed and making sure the shelter is working and making sure people have affordable housing and transit. We get lost in the busyness of our daily lives. And so I think we need to work personally and as a community to stay a little more engaged, especially at the local level where it counts the most. But also, you referred earlier to safe space, creating safe space. And that was something I wanted to touch on, because a lot of the folks at the memorial yesterday, coming to the heart of the Castro was not necessarily a safe place for them, especially because, you know, the Mission Street Police District uh, was there to help kind of control traffic and protect uh, the event. So for some people, especially people of color and trans folk, folks who are maybe on the margins economically, seeing the police, being in the Castro, which is considered a cisgendered white uh, place of privilege, that was not a safe decision. But one of the young um, queerdos who introduced uh, themselves to me at the end of the night said, but I want to be an activist. And part of that is sometimes I have to hold my breath and push myself into unsafe spaces and demand that they become safe. And I think a beautiful example of that was at the National March in Washington when this group, No Justice, No Pride, stopped the parade for a while and made their voices heard. And if you've looked at social media, there were people who reacted to that very badly. But I'm personally proud to say that the sisters who were in D.C. marched with them and started echoing their concerns and talking about the need for a queer community that looks more like the diverse people who are here. But we've got to be um, patient and gentle with each other in that. I think it's very easy to become strident politically 
and say that we can't start a conversation unless everybody is on the same page at the same time. Um, there's an old Navajo proverb, you know, perfection is the enemy of the good. And I think it's very telling. We, we've been in little cohorts for so long, we've forgotten how to exercise the muscle of unity and compromise and political horse trading. And I think one of the things our community needs to do in front of this massive right-wing assault is to take a deep breath, to give each other a little more space with compassion, and to really work to listen to each other more than talk, to create space where we can get to know one another. Uh, one of the powerful things about the memorial was when you hand the microphone over to people, they start telling their stories. And when one person tells their story, it encourages other people to tell their story. And if you just give the space and time, you start hearing a lot of amazing stories. And people start recognizing themselves in what they're hearing from other people. So I'd really encourage our community. We're doing amazing work. I've never seen people work so hard. I've been an activist for going on 40 years, apart from having to take a nap now and bring crackers with me to marches. Um, you know, I'm just as engaged as I was when I was 19. Um, and there are so many beautiful young people and older people out there who are getting out and making it work. But I just really encourage us, take the time to create space for storytelling, get to know each other. Um, I'm actually thinking of hosting a people's picnic in Dolores Park in August with no political agenda, but just to create a space where queer people of every stripe, color, and class can get together and share tacos and tamales and cucumber sandwiches and tofu and just really hang out. I think we need to do a lot more hanging out with each other. Um, re regarding the wider, the wider national, if you will, so-called resistance movement, um, how visible are the LGBTQI components of that, and and maybe even more specifically, what what special assets do LGBTQI activists bring to that wider movement? That that well, it I think we're everywhere. Yeah, I mean, I mean, John, we're we're a, a large part of the the leadership of Black Lives Matter. We're represented in the folks that started the Women's March and the March for Science and Climate Change. So we're everywhere. I think we we are we are providing the leadership as well as the bodies to the national resistance movement. And if we have any special insights, I think it's this kind of caution about what I would call co-option or assimilation or commodification. I think for people who have a certain amount of privilege or comfort in the society, when they get angry about what's happening in Washington, it's very easy to say we've won once we feel like we're back on the inside of the discussion. And I think the unique gift that queer people are bringing to this conversation is, well, that's not enough, because look at all the people still stuck on the outside. What about them? You know, that was, that was one of um, Harvey Milk's great sayings, is, you know, he made sure that the dog poop was picked up, he made sure that elderly Chinese folks had translation services at City Hall. He made sure that everybody was being looked after. You know, he was supporting labor when he did the Coors boycott. He wasn't just about white gay men in the Castro. He was about taking care of everybody. And I think, you know, we do a good job of that when we give ourselves space. That's why I think it's important, the comment we, we talked about earlier, let's not just be reactive let's use our deeper cycle of healing. Let's pause and connect this to our stories and to our tribe 
and talk about what we've learned and make sure that it's not just a race to get privilege. It's a race to expand the circle so that everyone is being taken care of. Can we, uh, Sister Mary, can we, uh, as far as the LGBTQ community, can we come together with the folks uh, who are a part of our community, but but also, you know, those who have access to privilege and, and resources? I mean, is it possible for us to organize in a way where we're united versus, I guess... You know, on the other side of the fence when it comes to opinions regarding organizing, I'm just uh, kind of sitting here trying to do some deep, deep, deep thinking and hearing already some stuff coming out of the news. Um, it, it, it's hurtful to see or to hear us so fractured during this critical time. It is hurtful, Michelle, but, you know, this June I'll have been a drag nun for 30 years, mm-hmm. so I will tell you anything is possible. <laughs> if I could get through, if I can get through thirty years of being an anarchist crazy nun, you know, there's hope. But I think what you're saying it is hurtful. You know, when you start flexing this muscle of collaboration, it's really stiff and achy, and sometimes you have a spasm, and that means you inadvertently knock over the person that's exercising next to you. Like, I tried yoga for the first time about a month ago, and I nearly took out the people on my left and my right because I was really wobbly. Um, but they were very patient with me, and they moved their mats a little further away, you know, to be safe, but we got there at the end. And I think the, the really important thing is, can we collaborate? Yes. Is it going to be easy? No. There are going to be a lot of shouting matches and fights. There are going to be a lot of people who feel wounded and get up and leave the table or feel attacked when they're trying to be helpful. Uh, But, you know, we're a family, and this is family dynamics, and most of us have become very adept at negotiating that to live the lives authentically that we want to live. So, you know, I think two things I would just offer as a sister that have helped me tremendously, um, feel the hurt when it happens, acknowledge the feelings, and then learn to be able to speak in a way that offers the opportunity to come back together. Make space. Um, Sometimes the words, I'm sorry, are really important to say as well as they are to hear. Sometimes being able to say, what you just said upset me, and it's not where I want to be today, but we have a goal. So I'm going to put that aside for a moment and keep working on the goal, but I want you to know I want to come back to this because I love you as much as I love myself and I want us to both grow. So I think we're tremendously capable of doing this, but it's going to hurt for a while and it's going to challenge some people because there are people in our community who have been successful on the inside gaining privilege and there are people in our community who have not been successful and are on the outside. And if people think it's a zero-sum game where for one person to win, the other loses, they're going to be defensive. So it's going to take time to grow the pie and make everybody realize the enemy is that other person who really has hate in their heart and wants to see all of us go. It doesn't matter what you drive and what kind of tech job you have and how many millions of dollars your condo is. If you're queer, you can you can bet there's someone in D.C. who's about to come after you. Yeah. <laughs> so why are you attacking the trans kid of color on the street who just wants a place to live? 
why don't you help them and say, hey, you, Mr. 1%, get off your goddamn high horse and share a little bit of that through some just taxation and health care and affordable housing and make it work for more people. So sometimes I think this kind of emotional intensity we have makes us see one another as enemies. And, you know, I'm a diehard socialist. That's just the ruling class's way of continuing to use us to oppress one another and not see the real enemy, who are these people holding the power and the privilege. Sister Mary, you are my favorite. I love you so much. Thank you so much for being here with us. I adore you, Michelle. Keep on doing the work and fighting the good fight. You are so flawlessly beautiful. And, John, thank you for everything you do to contribute to. Remember, it's rise and resist, not just resist. And every now and then, remember to reapply your foundation because the cameras are on. (laughs) I love it. I will see you Pride Weekend. Thank you, Sister Mary. You sure will, my dear. Thank you for the time. Bye-bye. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, John Zipper and I, we will discuss Sessions' testimony. We'll even play back uh, uh, very early on uh, Feinstein's questioning of Jeff Sessions, Attorney General Jeff Sessions. I uh, was hoping that I could get more recordings, but we had, to, we had to start the show. So don't go away. We'll be right back. The Commonwealth Club is a unique organization that brings together people from a variety of backgrounds to explore important issues as a community. Sooner or later, everyone worth hearing comes to our stage. From Marga Gomez to Richard Chamberlain, from James Hormel to Kate Kendall, leading thinkers, activists, politicians, and artists have come to the Commonwealth Club of California. Ted Olson and David Boyes came here to discuss their winning legal strategy for same-sex marriage. Jason Collins talked about gay athletes. The Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence discussed activism and good works. Actor and director Rob Reiner explained how he got Hollywood behind same-sex marriage. Barney Frank described what it's like to be gay at the highest levels of Washington. From healthcare reform to transgender rights, from immigration to gay-owned businesses, it's all at the Commonwealth Club. And that's still just a portion of the 450 programs we present every single year, with new programming nearly every single day. Be a part of the conversation. Learn more at commonwealthclub.org, download our free app in iTunes, and join us in person the next time you're in San Francisco. The Commonwealth Club of California puts you face-to-face with today's thought leaders. Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? (laughs) Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side as a unified team of the best fertility specialists guided by the highest ethical standards Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Welcome back. Thank you so much for joining me here on this Tuesday. Just a reminder, because the Golden State Warriors won the championship, the trophy, you know, that big old thing, Taco Bell is giving away a taco. So it's an official Taco Tuesday. I don't make these things up. John Zipper of Commonwealth Club is here with us. John, thank you so much for being with us. Always a pleasure. I wanted to get, you know, 
a little bit more deeper in in this discussion of of uh, the LGBTQ activism, I think that you, I think that we should demonstrate and also be very honest about the fact that well, people have come to be more accepting of the LGBTQ community as like a community. Uh, we are really different people and very, very diverse, diverse in politics, diverse in class, gender, sexual orientation, mm-hmm. color, and, and, and all these things. And so when it when it comes to organizing, uh, we've got to find a, a, a way back to common ground. I think common ground in, in 69 through, I would say, I guess up until marriage equality, you know, we had things that we could fight on the same side for such as liberation we wanted everyone uh, that's lgbtq to be liberated um during the hiv aids movement i think that might have gotten a little bit more fractured in that if you weren't directly impacted or knew somebody or just didn't know how to 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 join the fight you didn't Uh, and then the women's rights movement also fractured us a little bit uh in you were either a feminist or you weren't or there were a lot of lesbians who were fighting for women's rights who kept gay men out of you know women's spaces um i think that if you just understand the context of lgbtq uh, activism you might have a better chance at being able to talk to people as sister mary was saying and getting people to come together i just think that it's so critical right now if you look at what's happening <laughs> the White House, I mean, the fighting within our own community does take our eyes or our focus off what we need to be focused on. Um, I don't know exactly what was going on in 1970 and 75 because I was too young. But, um, you know, of course, all of those differences were still there, you know, certainly. And uh, what you, I mean, a, a lot of what we're seeing now with people, you know, complaining about you know, one group or another within the broader LGBTQI uh, spectrum, if you will, um, it's because, okay, they've been quiet. <laughs> they were quiet when they were kids, and now they're looking at other generations saying they don't need to be quiet. So there's a little bit of a nostalgia, I think, that some people maybe have in the same way that some people in the country have a nostalgia from the 50s. It's like, oh, it was a time of economic prosperity, and we didn't have these riots in the streets. Well, you still had, you know, lots of racism and, and, and such. Yeah. It, so I, I think the fact that people are saying now what bothers them and such is not necessarily a bad thing. But I think, and I think this is what you were saying, when it comes to having a political movement or something, you've got to be able to not fracture because your opponents will know how to keep you fractured and, and yes. to play on those fractured lines. You know, Donald Trump knows how to do that. He's not a genius, but he does know how to find that little thing and yeah. ne- needle someone about it. Yeah, so it, I, it, I, yeah. I, you're absolutely right. I think that that was definitely part of the plan is to get us all fragmented and create chaos and get people to fight with each other. I mean, he's the master of doing that on social media. He has his own cabinet do that against each other. I'm serious. <laughs> I mean, that, that's his way of, of kind of managing. So, you know, he certainly is going to do that to his opponents. 
Well, speaking of, you know, the president, this administration, and yes, the reality show that he has built for the United States and the people watching now are pretty much everybody around the world. I I hope that you have been paying attention. I think most of you have who are tuning into the Progressive Voices Network. I mean, everybody who produces a show on this network is talking about it. But following, you know, Russiagate and the the, uh, Senate hearings um, uh, on these things, so today was Attorney General Jeff Sessions. We caught a good maybe 45 minutes of it. Um, I, I, overall, I mean, just the first 45 minutes and reading my Facebook status updates or Twitter feed, it sounds like everyone is saying what I think, and that is Jeff Sessions a professional skirter. Or you could, you could, get, you could articulate it in a different way. Is, is that because you tend to follow people on Facebook who agree with you? <laughs> Well, no, on Twitter, actually, I follow people that I I tend to want to try to understand what their mindset is like. Um, So they're oftentimes people that I disagree with. But 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 there are, you know, professional legal scholars, even Republicans uh, who are not a part of this hearing. Absolutely understand what's happening here and what I think is what's happening, and I will articulate it in this way, is Jeff Sessions is not just an attorney general. This is a seasoned, experienced person as far as being a politician, as far as knowing what how the system is, and yes, how to corrupt the system or get away from, you know, uh, 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 things if you're under investigation. And so he seemed to just kind of either interrupting people, taking up time, um, as he's being questioned or not really answering the question, not really answering in a way in which someone with, you know, integrity at the level of, uh, that he's at as attorney general would react, whether that's invoking power or, and, or cannot answer that question. He's just not giving us anything. Yeah. I mean, I'll be honest. I didn't expect too much from his testimony today. Um, and I kind of wonder because he asked to testify so I kind of wonder if he wanted to do that earlier rather than later when there would have been more stuff they would have thrown at him. And then later, if he's called back, of course, he can just say, look, I've already testified on this. You know, um, I think he's a smart enough politician and probably a smart enough legal mind, albeit with abhorrent views, um, that, that he knew what he was doing. He did not come kicking and screaming before the Senate. Um, I, you know, Jeff, I mean, we... We both watched James Comey. I'm sure. I'm sure everyone saw that, um, and that was momentous. Um, that was extremely important, not just because he, you know, really knew what he was doing, but from a lot of the the uh, kind of expert commentary I was seeing afterward, especially from legal minds, they were saying what Comey was did manage to do was kind of lay out some. Uh, legal justifications for Robert Mueller, who's head the special prosecutor, to uh, uh, to basically go after President Trump for uh, obstruction of justice, and basically that didn't exist before in any you know solid, clear legal manner. Mo- uh, Comey, who definitely knew what he was doing, uh, laid that out and got it out there on the record and and communicated that basically to everyone who needed to have it communicated. So Sessions today probably would not be testifying if Comey had not just recently testified. But um, I think we're going to probably have a lot of these kind of high-profile testify t- testimonies, excuse me, from folks uh, because this, this whole 
investigation keeps going, even though there are some Republicans who are saying, oh, we should just call off these Russia investigations. It's all about nothing. Ugh. It's a waste of money. Ugh. So-called people who want to stand <laughs> for the American people and defend our, our constitution, our democracy. Anyways, you know, we got to at least Diane Feinstein's questioning. And, I mean, last time during Comey's um, session or during Comey's testimony, uh, I mean, Kamala Harris, uh, our very own Kamala Harris here in California, Senator Harris, did a great job in terms of questioning. Um, I'll go back to see what she had to say. But Dianne Feinstein did a pretty good job in in kind of putting some pressure on Jeff Sessions. So let's just play it for those who missed it and or those who enjoy going back and listening to these things. Welcome, Attorney General. Thank you. Um, on uh, May 19th, um, Mr. Rosenstein, in a statement to the House of Representatives, uh, essentially told them that he learned on May 8th that President Trump intended to remove uh, Director Comey. When you wrote your letter on May 9, did you know that the president had already decided to fire Director Comey? Uh, Senator Feinstein, uh, I would say that I believe it's been made public that uh, the president asked us our opinion. It was given, and he asked us to put that in writing. Uh, and um, I don't know how much more he said about it than that, but uh, I believe he has talked about it, and I would let his words speak for themselves. Well, on May 11th, uh, on NBC Nightly News, two days later, the president stated he was going to fire Comey regardless of the recommendation. So I'm puzzled about the recommendation because um, the decision had been made. So what was the need for you to write a recommendation? Well, we were asked our opinion, uh, and when we expressed it, which was consistent with uh, the uh, memorandum and letter we wrote, uh, I felt comfortable in and uh, I guess the deputy attorney general did too in, in providing that information in writing. So do you concur with the president uh, that he was going to fire Comey regardless of recommendation because the problem was the Russian investigation? Senator Feinstein, I guess I'll just have to let his words speak for himself. Uh, I'm not sure what was in his mind explicitly uh, when we talked with him. Did you ever discuss Director Comey's uh, FBI handling of the Russia investigations with the president or anyone else? Uh, Senator Feinstein, that would call for a communication between the attorney general and the president, and I'm not able to comment on that. You are not able to answer the question here whether you ever discussed that with him? That's correct. And. How do you view that? Since you discussed his termination, why wouldn't you discuss the reasons? Well, I, I, those were put in writing and sent to the president, uh, and he made those public, so uh, uh, he made that public. Not, so you'd had no verbal uh, conversation with him well, about the firing uh, of Mr. Comey? I'm not able to discuss with you or confirm or deny uh, the nature of uh, private conversations 
that I may have had with the president on this subject or others. And I know that um, how this will be discussed, but that's the rules that has you know, been long others, adhered to by the Department of Justice, as you know, Senator Feinstein. You're a longtime colleague, <laughs> but we heard Mr. Coates and we heard Admiral Rogers say essentially the same thing when it was easy just to say if the answer was no, no. Well, the easy would have been easy to say if it was yes, yes, but both would have been improper. Okay. So how exactly were you involved in the termination of Director Comey? Because I am looking at your letter dated May 9, and um, you say the director of the FBI must be someone who follows faithfully the rules and principles, who sets the right example for our law enforcement officials. Therefore, I must recommend that you remove Director Comey and identify an experienced and qualified individual to lead the great men and women of the FBI. Do you really believe that this had to do with Director Comey's performance with the men and women of the FBI? There was a clear view of mine and of uh, uh, Deputy Attorney General Rosenstein as he set out at some length in his memoranda, which I adopted and sent forward to the president, that we had uh, problems there, and it was my best judgment that a fresh start at the FBI was the appropriate thing uh, to do. Uh, and when I asked, I said that to the president, it's something I had adhered to. Deputy Rosenstein's letter uh, dealt with a number of things. When the uh, Mr. Comey uh, declined the Clinton prosecution, uh, that was really a usurpation of the authority uh, of the federal prosecutors in the Department of Justice. It was a stunning development. The, the uh, FBI are, is the investigative team. They don't decide prosecution policies. And so uh, that was a, a thunderous thing. He also commented at some length on the declination of the Clinton uh, uh, prosecution, which you should not normally, and you shouldn't do. Uh, policies have been historic. If you decline, you decline, and you don't talk about it. There were other things that uh, had happened that indicated to me a lack of discipline, and it caused controversy on both sides of the aisle. And I had come to the conclusion that a fresh start was appropriate and did not mind putting that in writing. My time is up. Thank, Thank you, you very much. <laughs> Much clearer now, right? Much, much clearer. Um, I'm, I'm reading tweets now from people uh, who are suggesting that Senator Kamala Harris did an incredible job of uh, holding it to Jeff Sessions to try to answer the question. I think I think one comment she tweeted or her staff tweeted was that, you know, you don't remember, you don't recall, you don't know, did you even... Did you look to any documents where there was anything written down to refresh your memory? <laughs> um, so, you know, I, I know that not everybody's going to tune into sessions or, and, and people are not going to understand the importance of these hearings. 
But what I want to point out is that, you know, what it's doing basically is on record uh, putting, I think, our branches of government, it's putting, it's, it's, it's a test in kind of how there can be checks and balances and or it's also going to open up to people's eyes, in my opinion, you know, which politicians are really there for the American people or they're, you know, as, as uh, someone there for self-serving themselves or an agenda or covering up for their friends. It, it certainly is showing that even with the weak hand that the Democrats have in Washington right now, with Republicans controlling the Supreme Court, the White House, both houses of Congress, um, that Democratic senators, in this case, can, in fact, still, you know, help drive the discussion and, and uh, even kind of, and certainly in something like this where most of the Republicans are just, you know, uh, attorney general sessions, um, how good of an attorney general are you after all? Um, you know, uh, uh, just our two California Democratic senators, uh, Kamala Harris and uh, Dianne Feinstein, two very different people in, in demeanor and such, both very intelligent. And of course, Kamal Harris, you know, past prosecutor, she's got a mind perfect for this kind of thing. Um, Diane Feinstein, you know, is the absolute opposite of a showboater. But what she was doing was very methodically trying to pin him down on stuff and it make was. him deny stuff that, you know, why he couldn't do stuff. Um, so those those are two very smart senators to have there, and you wouldn't see that if there weren't these high-profile hearings. So even though I had said earlier this show, you know, I wasn't expecting big stuff out of it, but I'm still not. It's it's not going to dramatically change stuff. It's worthwhile doing, and the Democrats, I think, have, have probably shown themselves to be pretty good, especially um, our two California ones. And, of course, John McCain is not doing well. If you saw him during the James Comey, uh, hearing when it kind of looked like he was expecting to have a nap time and instead suddenly it was called on to ask questions. Yeah, did did we ever find out what happened to him? Yeah, well, he said he was up late the previous night watching Arizona Diamondbacks, so he was blaming them. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe these people are in office. Oh my goodness. Um, what about, you know, process? Like what happens after these hearings? Do you know? Uh, more hearings. More hearings. I mean, really, what's what's going to be, if people are looking for something eventually to happen, whether it's indictments or impeachment or anything like that, that's going to happen after Robert Mueller completes his investigation. And what is scary for the Trump team is that Robert Mueller can kind of go anywhere this leads. You know, remember, Bill Clinton's impeachment came out as a result of something that had nothing to do with uh, you know, how what he was doing with an intern, it started off with, you know, his private business dealings years, something like seven years previously that that had started. Um, it can hobble an administration even if it doesn't, for example, lead to an impeachment because you basically have a lot of people who have to walk around with lawyers who can't afford lawyers. You know, we're not just talking about the top people. Um, I was reading something recently about, in fact, during the Clinton years, you had various White House uh, staffers who would be very careful and not say anything to another fellow staffer about you know some topic just because they didn't know if that staffer was being investigated or they didn't know if they themselves were being investigated. Um, 
it, so it, it, it does kind of increase the, certainly the paranoia of a White House. And for a White House that already is, is uh, wallowing in paranoia, it's just going to get worse. You know what, so. who's been really quiet about everything and anything is our vice president. I mean, I know vice presidents usually don't do anything, um, but uh, that, he's been pr- really quiet. I mean, even the media has been quiet about him. He's mostly, I think, been busy drawing floor plans where he wants to put the furniture when he moves into the White House. Um, you know, what kind of curtains he wants to hang up. I think that's what he's doing. <laughs> well, actually, now we do know what, you know, the rest of Trump's team feels because uh, the president had this cabinet meeting yesterday, if you saw that, which was kind of like straight out of North Korea, where he went around to have every member of the cabinet say just how incredibly pleased they were to be working with his wonderfulness. Um, And it was widely derided. Chuck Schumer, this is worth looking up in Google. I I saw it on Twitter, Facebook, one of those two. Uh, Chuck Schumer then did a parody of it where he had like his own staff going around just kind of talking about how incredibly thrilled they were to be working with the great senator from New York. Um, sure. Yeah. So it's what you asked earlier, where is this all going? Watch Robert Mueller. What's going and, and, You know, Diane Feinstein, I think she was the one who said it, you know, that there are two investigations. There's the congressional investigation and there's the, the uh, Justice Department, which is Robert Mueller's. Actually, there are three because the congressional, there's a House one and there's a Senate one. But you know, the House and the Senate, they're, they might be good in some of these hearings in, in, in bringing stuff up. And like the Comey one I said before, you know, he kind of brought stuff up that I think kind of was a, a message to Mueller, hey, look into this, or something like this. Um, but uh, Robert Mueller, you know, people just want to maybe spend five minutes Googling Robert Mueller, reading, him up on, reading up on him on Wikipedia or something. They'll have a better sense of who it is who is put in this position. So even a lot of folks who maybe really dislike law enforcement or, or especially federal law enforcement might have an aversion to this. They might feel a little bit better after knowing a bit more about Mueller. He is known as kind of being that, that uh, kind of stereotypical, uh, boring, if you will, but straight ramrod, straight, you know, G-man. So he's going to go where he thinks he needs to go. He's not going to go out there trying to take down Trump. That's not going to be his goal. He's going to go there if he, that's where it leads, you know, that kind of thing. So he's not doing this as a Democrat, I don't think. He's not doing it as a Republican. I don't actually know what his politics are. He served under uh, both a Republican and a Democratic president. But Comey led the way. Mueller will take us as far as it's going to go. If Mueller now, eventually, whenever it happens, comes out with his final investigation report and says, okay, nothing really was going on here, Game's over. Hear more from John Zipper. He hosts his own show. It's the week-to-week political roundtable talk uh, right here on the Michelle Miao Show, Fridays, 4 o'clock, California time. What do you get, What do you have for us coming up this Friday? You only ask that on days that I do not at all know. I will post it. <laughs> I will post it up on our Facebook and, uh, and Twitter. Thank you so much for joining us here on the program. Uh, for more on John Zipper and the work that he does, you can head to CommonwealthClub.org on the Michelle Miao Show. If you'd like to see our television shows or hear more podcast stuff that we do, you can head to MichelleMiao.com. Thank you so much. We'll see you tomorrow. Well, I guess you'll hear from us tomorrow. <laughs> you'll hear from me. Okay, I'm going now. Bye. <laughs>